Well, good morning. My name is James Green. I hope that I know most of you. It's been my great privilege to serve here at this church on staff for the last nine years. I've been a member of this church for the last 20 years. Honestly, my grandparents drug me to this church at a different location when I was just a kid. This is the only church I've ever known. And today is my last day here on staff. And so I just want to make sure and say thank you. Because I'm going to go and follow God on this wild adventure he has for me and my family. And we're going to join him out in the great Northwest. But before we go, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to serve. For allowing me to love. For allowing me to teach and to shepherd. It has been my incredible privilege to be used by God here at his church. I have been blessed by God through you. So, God bless you. Let's study the Bible. <laughs> Turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 17 to 26 today. We're going to look at a story that actually kind of starts out, it looks pretty comical. But then God uses Luke to highlight this incredibly important theological truth. And here it is, God alone. And in this passage, it's God and the person of Jesus Christ. God alone can forgive sin. Now up to this point in time, Jesus has been establishing his authority in his public ministry in Luke 4 and verse 5 because he wants to show this fundamental truth. He has the authority to forgive sin. And also in this passage, we're going to see no matter how bad off we are, no matter what condition we arrive in when we come to see Jesus, our most pressing need is going to be to have our sin forgiven. Now maybe you're familiar with this story. The recipient of forgiveness in this passage shows up as a paralyzed man laying on a stretcher. And he's lowered down through the roof of what is most likely the Apostle Peter's house. He shows up unable to walk. He has to be carried to Jesus, and yet physical healing is not his number one need. Forgiveness of sin was. Because it's truly the number one need for every person in the world. So we're going to hear about a guy who's paralyzed. And he gets this rather comical and, and pretty harrowing audience with Jesus. And instead of Jesus looking at him and healing his paralysis, he forgives his sin. Because that's truly his greatest need. But then there's some story within the story stuff going on here. And we're going to see this in Jesus' response to some critics who are there on the scene at this miracle. And Luke is going to point out to us the contrast between the faith of these men who will not be defeated and bringing their friend to Jesus with the lack of faith of some of the other people present in this story. There's some remarkable servants in this account. They bring a man to Jesus and they're persistent and they're creative. And for us as a church, we can apply that. In our approach to bringing people to Jesus, we need to be encouraging and creative and persistent, just like these guys carrying the stretcher. They're carrying somebody on a mat to meet Jesus. And the parallel account, and Mark tells us there's four guys here. There's one for each corner of the stretcher. And they have great faith. And the paralyzed man in this story, he displays pretty impressive faith too because he, he doesn't stop this at any time. He's along for this ride, this lengthy process. They're going to go through some pretty ridiculous efforts to get this guy 
to Jesus. And so Luke's going to show that their faith, the stretcher carriers, and this paralyzed man, it's in contrast to the lack of faith from the critics who are there in the audience. Because they're focusing on the wrong side of the story. They are there just to find a way to criticize Jesus. That's what critics do. They tear down. They destroy. They're negative. So the application question for us becomes, do we want to be creative, persistent, encouraging, stretcher carriers, doing anything and everything we can to pick people up and bring them to Jesus? Or do we want to be sermon critics and miss the work that Jesus is doing all around us because we want to criticize the way He's doing it? And just practically, let me ask this. How seriously do we take that challenge from last week? Pray about this upcoming Easter Blitz. Identify three or five lost or unchurched people that we can invite to the Easter services here at the chapel. Because this is a great opportunity, hear me, to be a stretcher carrier. Did we take one of these last week and then forget about it? Or do we take it and kind of pick at the specifics of it? Are we planning right now a strategy to reach our lost or unchurched friends and bring them to hear about Jesus on Easter Sunday? Are we going to be stretcher carriers in this life? Or would we rather be like the Pharisees or the teachers of the law in this account, the critics of Jesus teaching and His miracles as He's there trying to demonstrate His authority to forgive sin? So we're going to call these non-faith guys sermon critics because that contrasts real well with stretcher carriers. But, but that's what they are. These scribes, these Pharisees, here in Luke 5, they're sermon critics. They don't like the sermon that Jesus teaches. In fact, they accuse him of blasphemy because they're so focused on finding something to attack in Jesus that they don't even notice the miracle that takes place right before their eyes. So which will we be? Stretcher carriers or sermon critics? Let's read this account together. We'll start by looking at verses 17 to 19 of Luke chapter 5. Here Luke writes, one day Jesus was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to perform healing. And so some men came carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of Jesus. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof And they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Now again, it's okay. This is funny. This is a comical scene that Luke is describing here. Not the fact that the guy is paralyzed, but how he makes his entrance into the room. For everybody there other than Peter, this is funny. Because I think this was at Peter's house. So he's probably on the phone with the insurance agent going, what's my deductible? Because there's a big hole in the roof. But, but for everybody else who was there, this is funny. Unless you were there and like some debris fell on you or you had to dodge a ceiling tile. Everybody else is seeing something that's pretty comical. What, what, would, what would that look like if you were in your house? There's a small group of folks with you and all of a sudden there's some commotion up on the roof. You know, everybody would be distracted, right? They'd want to look up there. But here, Jesus is teaching. And he's pretty good. He's pretty riveting. So they put the distraction out of their mind and they start to focus on him. But the next thing you know, there's some stuff falling from the ceiling. There's some debris. And then the next thing you know, a little hole opens up. 
And then it gets bigger and bigger, and there's some sweaty-faced guys poking their head down through the hole, and they dig it big enough that they lower a stretcher through this hole they've created, and this embarrassed-looking guy is all of a sudden laying at Jesus' feet. What would he say? Laying on the mat, and you look up, what's up, Jesus? You know, I, mean, it, it, I just don't understand what that must have looked like. It's awkward. It's funny. So allow yourself a smile there, and let's see what the context is that causes all of this to happen. Why did the servant-hearted guys have to get so creative in bringing this man to Jesus? Why didn't they just come through the front door? Well, the text tells us. We learn Jesus is here. He's fulfilling his purpose. He'd come to teach about the kingdom of God. It's what he was always doing. And on this occasion, he draws a crowd as usual. And so it's standing room only at Peter's house. You ever been to a a huge playoff game or a big concert or anything like that? What's the the best way to cram the maximum number of people into a venue? You get them to stand. You fit more people in. That's, That's where we get that phrase, standing room only. Well, it's clear from this passage that would have been a good idea here. Because in verse 19, it says a big crowd had assembled. But what do we see? There's a bunch of guys up in the front. And they've come in, and they've taken the best seats in the house. And instead of standing and making more room, it says they're sitting. Now, verse 17 indicates these guys were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In verse 21, Luke calls them by another name. He calls them scribes. Now, who are these guys? Who are the scribes and the Pharisees? And what are they doing sitting at Peter's house while there's a standing room only crowd? Let me start here at the beginning and say, these Pharisees are people who wanted to obey the Bible. That sounds good, doesn't it? If I took just a little informal poll today and said, hey, do we want to obey the Bible? I think I'd see a lot of hands. So that's a pretty good place to start. So often in the Bible, what we see when we we see these Pharisees is we're dealing specifically with religious Pharisees. And they have moved way beyond where they started, which was in a good place, right? Let's obey the Bible. And now they've come up with some rules you have to follow to be able to obey the Bible. So just know, not all the Pharisees were bad guys, but most of the ones that we run into here in Scripture, they've moved beyond that good place where they started. Now they've become religious. So instead of focusing on what Jesus does, now they focus on what people have to do. Instead of focusing on Jesus' perfect sinless life, they focus on how they can try to live a perfect life. Now they're focusing on man's works instead of God's grace. That's a mistake. And these Pharisees, they're just regular guys. They're just common people. They were blue-collar workers. They didn't have any formal education. Instead, they'd get all their information from the teaching of a particular scribe. Because the scribes were the guys who were educated. They were the trained theologians. Today, these would be the guys who've gone to Bible college and and seminary, and they write books and commentaries. And they'd have this great knowledge, and they'd share it with this group of Pharisees that followed them. And that can be great. It can be very good. Of course, it also provides the opportunity to get out of hand. Some of the Pharisees, not all of them, but the religious Pharisees, they'd get overzealous for the teaching of a particular scribe. And these religious Pharisees would then go out and try and force to the letter of the law or by 
adding some laws that try to enforce this teaching. And, and these Pharisees, they became very powerful. In A.D. 70, after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, they became a really loud voice in Judaism. Now, if you think this is weird, I want to ask you this. Have you run into any religious Pharisees recently? Just think about it. Do you know somebody that rarely, if ever, quotes the Bible, but all the time they're posting on Facebook or they're blogging or they're tweeting about what their favorite pastor said, what their favorite author said? They can only use their, their favorite pastor's study Bible. And, and if you disagree with what their favorite teacher teaches, then, then your interpretation's wrong. They'll just write you off. Do we see that today? Yes. So we can cut these guys just a little bit of slack because they started out in a good place. Let's obey the Bible. They ended up in a really bad place. Let's criticize people who don't obey the Bible the way that we do. That's who these people are here in Luke chapter 5. And the text says these critics, they come from all over, from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And so you've got to ask, did Jesus send out an invitation to this miracle? Well, sort of, he did. If you remember, the last miracle that we saw that Jesus performed was the cleansing of the leper. And do you remember, after the leper was cleansed, he was supposed to go and be obedient to this command to, to be pronounced ceremonially clean by a priest. Now, the leper blew it. He was disobedient at the start. But clearly, eventually, he did this. He went to the priest, and Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus tells him to go because he's obedient to Scripture. But as soon as this guy goes and the priest pronounces, hey, there was a leper who was cleansed. This guy, Jesus, did it. Now he knows these religious authorities are going to have their antenna up. They're going to go, we got to go hear this guy. Who, who does this guy think he is? We're the religious authorities. What is he doing? So they show up at Peter's house. But listen, they want to hear Jesus teach. They don't want to learn. They don't want to apply the teaching. They don't, they don't want to worship. They don't want to be changed. They want to criticize. You remember we talked about this back in Luke chapter 5 and verse 3 because the posture for teaching at that time was that you would sit. You would stand while the Scripture was read and then you would sit to teach. And so here at Peter's house, all these teachers of the law and the Pharisees there, what do they do while Jesus teaches? They sit. They sit right there in front of Jesus because they want Him to know we're the actual authorities. We're just here to critique you. This truth becomes even clearer at the end of chapter 5. We don't have time to get into all this today, but it's the scribes and the Pharisees who are there and they grumble whenever Jesus eats with sinners, when He hangs out with tax collectors. Because the Pharisees have heard the scribes say, well, you have to avoid sin, and now they've interpreted that to mean, well, you just have to avoid sinners. And Jesus says, wow, you guys are missing it. I'm teaching about the kingdom of God. I'm teaching about the path to salvation and the reality that it's only people who recognize their need to be saved who will benefit from God's grace. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Luke 5, 31, he says the healthy people don't need a doctor. It's the sick people who know they need help. So Jesus is teaching, I didn't come to make people who think they're righteous on their own feel better about themselves. 
I came to share the gospel so that people can recognize their sinfulness and respond by coming to the end of themselves and placing faith in Christ. So in Peter's house here in this passage, later in chapter 5, in Matthew's house, we see the same problem getting in the way that we see today sometimes. When we want to bring someone to meet Jesus, we want to introduce them to Jesus, they're religious people who get in the way. Isn't that right? We tell somebody about Jesus and they say, yeah, I've seen how some Christians conduct themselves. They're judgmental. They're hypocritical. They have this big list of rules you need to obey. And you've got to call a timeout and say, yeah, that happens. You're right. But you're talking about religious people. Let me introduce you to Jesus. We need to be honest. Even if we desire to be the very best Christ followers we can be, we're people. We're going to mess this up. So we need to tell the people we bring to Jesus, focus on Jesus. Don't focus on me. Follow me only as I follow Christ. And so we see these four stretcher carriers, and they find Jesus. And they follow him to Peter's house, and they know he's there, and now they're going to do everything they can to bring their friend to Jesus. I think it's a good bet they don't even fully understand what's going on here. I'd bet they're probably motivated by the fact that they just want to see their buddy healed of his paralysis. Jesus physically cleansed the leper. I'm sure he can heal our buddy. Being forgiven of his sin, that's probably not even on their radar screen. But they just know they've got to get this guy in front of Jesus. That's why this Easter blitz that we're praying about is so important. It's not all about getting a bunch of people to show up in church on Easter Sunday so we can bring out the green chairs. It's got to be about introducing people to Jesus. What are we willing to do to bring people to Jesus? This is what I want to focus on today. These stretcher carriers have amazing faith, but they also have some incredible examples that we can apply. I hope we do. Look on your outline. Here's number one. They were creative. When they show up with their friend, it's standing room only. Jesus would draw these huge crowds. This is no exception. And the religious guys are sitting inside the house. They're taking up all the good space. So there's no way these four guys carrying the stretcher can jockey their way into the house. But do they give up? No. They see this as a challenge. They step back and they go, hmm, I wonder if there's another way. Seems like we've hit a closed door. I know, let's see if we can find an open roof. Palestinian homes back in the day, they would normally have these flat roofs. And a lot of times there'd be an outside staircase to, to access it because during warm weather, they'd use the roof like another room of their house. Normally made up of clay tiles, kind of packed in with mud. Now one of the commentaries that I read suggested that this crowd was probably so large and the people were so packed in around Peter's house, he says it's a good bet these guys had to climb to the roof of a house three or four houses over from Peter's. The houses were kind of all arranged like row houses that we think of today, and they had narrow alleyways between them. And he said the crowd is so dense, these guys probably came up three or four houses over, and then a couple of them would run and jump over the alley, and then the other guys literally would throw the stretcher over the alley. 
They'd put the stretcher out on the edge and push it, and the other two guys would pull it over. And they'd do that, and they'd jump to the next house. And, and they did that until they got to Peter's house. I don't know if that's true or not, but I love that. That's daring. That's creative. They finally get to Peter's house, and there's no hole in the roof, so they make one. They dig into his roof. They dismantle it. How can we apply this today? How creative are we willing to be to introduce people to Jesus? I have some friends who are doing missions work in a country that is closed to missionaries. But they went over there to teach ESL. They're teaching English as a second language. And because of that, they have this incredible opportunity to live their lives in Christ in front of people. That's creative. I used to work with Young Life Ministries. And I was always so blessed because the, the campuses here in this area were always so great about letting me, my volunteer leaders, on the school campus. But, but not all schools do that. I had friends who were doing Young Life in other states, and they had to get creative. They became substitute teachers. They volunteered to coach track or football or basketball. They volunteered as tutors after school. They did all this so they could be in the school. They could live their lives in Christ in front of these students. When we find a door that's blocked, are we going to pray and think and act so that we can find a roof that's open somewhere? So that we can introduce people to Jesus? These guys were creative. They also had a proper sense of urgency. This is what we see in the story. I mean, what if they carried the stretcher and they came around the corner and there's this big crowd and they went, eh, not today. I'm sure it's not in God's timing for our friend to be saved today. Look at that crowd. We'll just wait until it thins out a little bit. No. These stretcher carriers didn't let the circumstances stop them. Now, I think this is critical for us in the application because we know we're not supposed to force the gospel on people. I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. But we can and we should communicate a sense of urgency to people. The end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul explains that as Christ followers, he uses a great word, we're Christ's ambassadors. We're supposed to go into the world and make an appeal for people to be reconciled back to God. And verse 20 of chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians says, we should beg people. Doesn't that sound urgent? We should beg people to accept God's grace and begin a relationship with God. And I love this. Because just a couple verses later, Paul revisits the sense of urgency. It's in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2. He writes, And working together with Jesus, because that's what we do as ambassadors, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time, I listen to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why are we issuing this Easter Blitz challenge? Because if you get folks to show up on Easter Sunday, I promise you the gospel will be presented. And the elders of this church are praying, and they believe that's going to be the acceptable time for some people. And we can be part of that. 
You could be part of introducing somebody to Jesus that day. That's going to be the day of salvation for them. They're going to have forgiveness of their sin. These stretcher carriers are creative. And they're urgent. And they're also persistent. They don't give up easily. Without being overbearing, without beating somebody over the head, how persistent are we in sharing the gospel? How persevering are we in carrying people to Jesus? Walt Disney, the name that we all recognize from the cartoons and the movies and the theme parks, but I wonder if you know the rest of the story about old Walt's perseverance. Disney's actually a native Missourian. His first job, he worked for a newspaper called the Kansas City Star, and he got fired from that job, and I love this, because of his lack of creativity. <laughs> so Disney went out and he started his own animation company. It's called Laugh-A-Gram Films. And it was successful right away. And so he partnered with a distributor to distribute the cartoons, and the distributor went bankrupt. And so Disney lost another job. He's back to square one. But he didn't give up. He persisted. It's time he created a cartoon character named Oswald the Rabbit. And Oswald was so successful to the point where Disney again went to go partner. He was going to partner with Universal Studios. And think what you will of Universal Studios, they robbed Oswald the Rabbit from Disney. They patented the character without telling Walt, and then they hired the animator that Walt had used to draw him, and they left him out. But he didn't give up. He persisted. He created another more famous character, a mouse named Mickey. Maybe you've heard of him. The critics in the room said, you can't have a cartoon mouse. That's a bad idea. It'll scare women. How'd that work out? So Disney forged ahead. This time he stayed away from distributors. He formed his own company. You know it as the Disney Company. And what do you know? It became pretty successful in its own right. And just one of the most fitting ends to a story that you can imagine, almost 20 years ago, this is 30 years after Walt's death, the Disney company bought the American Broadcasting Company. And at that time, one of ABC's holdings was a newspaper called the Kansas City Star. So the newspaper that originally fired Walt for his lack of creativity became part of his empire because of his creativity. But don't miss this. Because of his dogged persistence. Are we that persistent in carrying people to Jesus? We've invited somebody to church a couple times and they never come. Do we throw up our hands? Or are we willing to say, hey, I know what, next Sunday I'll just show up at your house and I'll bring you to Jesus. Take some donuts, take a muffin, take something. Soften them up a little bit. But are we willing to do that? I have a couple friends young girls when I was on Young Life staff, and they kept inviting this lady to church, and she'd never come. She had a million excuses. One of the ones she had was, well, I don't have anything to wear. And so these girls went over to this lady's house one Sunday morning, and they said, hey, we're ready to pick you up, take you to church. She goes, I don't have anything to wear. And they pulled a new outfit out of their backpack and said, here, wear this. They all went to church that day. Without becoming a nuisance Can we be more creatively persistent like these stretcher carriers? Number four, they employed a team effort. In this account, you see it took four guys to get this one man to Jesus. 
I'd suggest it'd be a good idea to make this Easter Blitz more of a team effort. I think get an accountability partner. Offer to pray for the people on their list. Have them pray for the people on your list. Have them ask you, hey, have you contacted those people I'm praying for? We could be together on this. Oftentimes, it will require a team to introduce somebody to Jesus. And these stretcher carriers in the account, they're great because they're a team and you don't see any one of them trying to take credit. Not a one of them says, well, I jumped further from roof to roof than you did. There's no guy sitting there saying, well, I was holding the most weight on the rope while we were lowering our men. No, they don't have any pride. They don't want to take any credit. What they want to do is get this guy in front of Jesus. They're positive Jesus is the one who can heal their friend. You know, the Bible covers this pretty clearly. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7. Paul says this. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But God, who causes the growth, He's everything. God is everything. But He uses a team of folks who are watering and planting and carrying people on a stretcher. It's, it's maybe the most incredible thing I've ever had to fathom. That God can use me. He doesn't need me. But He chooses to use me. And He chooses to use you. That's incredible. So what happens next? This comical scene turns pretty serious. Look at verse 20 of Luke chapter 5 with me. This paralyzed man now lays there at Jesus' feet. And Jesus responds this way. Seeing their faith, He said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. There's two huge things here. We've already mentioned God alone can forgive sin. Having our sin forgiven is the greatest need any of us will ever have. That's huge. But notice then this other key thing. It says Jesus sees their faith. Whose faith? Well, it's the faith of the stretcher carriers. And it's the faith of the paralyzed man who was willing to be carried. He was immensely humbled. Imagine if they really did have to throw him from roof to roof. Even if they didn't, imagine being lowered down slowly in front of a huge crowd of people and laying there at Jesus' feet. Jesus is blown away by their collective faith. Now hear me on this. Ultimately, it's each individual's faith that is a gift from God that results in salvation. The stretcher carrier's faith couldn't save this guy. It was his faith. But here, Jesus points to their collective faith Because he wants to highlight that contrast between the active faith of the stretcher carriers as opposed to the lack of faith from the sermon critics. I mean, here's a group of religious guys, and there's a a needy, hurting person being lowered down in front of them. Do we see any of them say, oh, here, let me get out of the way and make some room? Do any of them spring up and say, oh, here, let me help lower the guy down? No. They're just there to see if they can catch Jesus in some heresy. They're so focused on criticizing him, they're oblivious to the fact that this paralyzed guy comes down literally right before their eyes. Please. Please, let's not be that kind of church. Let's not miss needy and hurting people that are right in front of us. 
And this whole scene turns from comical to quizzical on a dime here for this paralyzed man and his friends. Because he finally arrives there at Jesus' feet. And I bet he's just thinking, okay, time to be healed. And what does Jesus do? He addresses his greatest need. He forgives his sin. Do you think his buddies are standing up there with their heads stuck down through the roof going, hey, what's going on down there? Hey, has old Fred been healed yet? You know, what, 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 did, what did Jesus say? Forgives his sin? No, no. Our buddy needs to walk. What, what's going on down there? Isn't it more important that he would be healed? And this is important for us. Because I don't want us to miss this either. Sometimes we think we have somebody's needs all figured out. But we're way off. We see somebody that's paralyzed and we think, well, their greatest need is physical healing. But what if that person could be healed and they still don't know Jesus? Then when their healthy body dies, they're going to be eternally separated from God. So which is more important? Sometimes we see a paralyzed person and we hurt for them emotionally. We say, oh, that's so sad. They, they, they have to beg. That's so hard. I know. Let's get them some economic help. Let, let's give them some money. Or maybe we can get them on food stamps. Or, or maybe we can give them some educational help so they can feel better about themselves. And again, what if they die without knowing Jesus? So which is more important? Are any of those things more important than forgiveness of sin? Jesus addresses this man's most pressing need. Don't miss that in this passage. What kind of reaction does that produce from the sermon critics? Verses 21 to 25 with me. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they huddle up. They begin to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered, And he said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he turns, he addresses the paralytic now. He says, get up. I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he got up before him, wouldn't you? And he picked up what he'd been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. See there in verse 21, the religious experts think they've got him. Aha! He's a blasphemer. That's what he is. He just said he could forgive sins. And we know, because we've studied so much, that only God can forgive sin, and they don't realize that Jesus just set them up. Jesus invited them here so he could perform this particular miracle right in front of him. And he's basically saying, this is what I've been trying to tell you guys. I'm God. And the scribes are over there huddled up in a circle, and they're quoting Psalm 51, where David says, against you, O Lord, alone have I sinned. And they're reasoning, well, if this guy says he can forgive sin, well, only God can forgive sin. So this guy, he's saying he's God. He's a blasphemer. We've got it figured out. That's the context of what's going on. Now, because of that, I think verse 22 has got to freak these guys out a little bit. Because Jesus knows their hearts. 
Jesus reads their minds here. He discerns their thoughts in this little huddle. And he says, okay, okay, okay. I know what you're thinking. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? He knows the answer. Jesus knows from a human perspective it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven because how on earth could you verify that? Absolutely no way to know if it happened or not. If I was there at Peter's house, if you were there, I could easily tell somebody your sins are forgiven. Nobody could prove whether I had actually done it or not. But if I was there, if you were there, if any normal person was there, there's no way they tried this next thing. Look at this. Because Jesus says in verse 24, okay, you want some evidence that I'm God? That you can actually see? If you need more proof that I have the authority on this earth, to forgive sins, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll heal this paralyzed man right in front of you. So Jesus tells this man, get up and walk, and he does. This is a throw-in. This is a bonus. Jesus has already met his greatest need. Now he heals this guy completely. He's Jesus. He throws in developed muscle tone so the guy can get up and walk away. And this guy does, and it says he's glorifying God. No kidding happens right in front of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they miss it. Because they're still over in their huddle, and they can't wrap their minds around this title, this little phrase that Jesus used in verse 24, the Son of Man. Title Jesus most liked to refer to himself by. We get this, I think, I hope, I pray. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is God. But only man can take man's penalty for sin on the cross and Jesus is man. Jesus Christ is fully God and He's fully man. So now we understand He can meet the greatest need of every single person on this planet. Anybody who's ever lived, anybody who ever will live. He can, and if we ask, He will forgive sin. He's Jesus. This should cause all of us to glorify God like the paralytic. Look at the last verse, verse 26. It says, They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We've seen remarkable things today. I would pray that's how every one of us leaves this worship service today. Are we going to say that? We've seen remarkable things. Do we understand that's worship right there? That's what it is? This is why we're supposed to come to church to give worship, to see remarkable things? These people who are at Peter's house to see Jesus, who saw this needy person come down and have his greatest need met, says they were struck with astonishment. They were filled with awe. That's what that word fear is. It's reverential fear. It's awe. And the passage says all. But from the context, from the next account in Luke's Gospel, the continued actions of the scribes and the Pharisees, the all doesn't include them. They missed it. Because they came to find fault with Jesus. They came to accuse Him of blasphemy. So they missed the opportunity to be filled with awe in the presence of God. 
Do we come to church every week? Which camp are we in? If we're coming as sermon critics, if we're coming waiting for something we don't like to pounce on, we're going to find it. I guarantee you. But what if we come needy? What if we come vulnerable? What if we come hurting and we're honest about it? Then do you understand that we can be forgiven of sin? Do you understand? I can promise you this. Jesus can meet our needs. Let's close our service today by taking communion together. It's a great opportunity. We celebrate the Lord's Supper out of obedience to God's Word as a way to remember that God has provided the way for sinners to be forgiven of sin, to be reconciled back to the God who created us. And He did that by sending His Son to remain fully God and to become fully man so that He'd be able to pay the penalty for our sin. He'd be able to forgive our sin. So we take the communion elements because they symbolically represent Christ's body and blood. And His Word says when we do, we're supposed to examine our hearts and confess our sin and be right with God. So if you're here today as a Christ follower, please know this, this is for you. The communion elements are on the table all around the room. And we're going to have some response time. And this is what you can do. Remember that great sacrifice. Remember the incredible gift of grace. And come and participate. But if you're here and you haven't done that, you haven't professed faith in Christ, why not let today be the day of salvation? You don't have to wait for Easter Sunday. Let the urgency be today. And I want you to think about how incredible this is. Maybe you think there's no way God could meet my greatest need. Think about this paralyzed guy. Think about the fact that God allows situations to look really bleak. They can look really dire. We can be really broken. And that's going to be the very best thing for us. Because those circumstances are going to allow us to receive forgiveness. After this paralyzed man was healed, I guarantee you this, he looked back on his paralysis and he thanked God. Because if he hadn't suffered from that condition, his friends wouldn't have picked him up and carried him to Jesus. And he wouldn't have heard those amazing words, friend, your sin is forgiven. We think about that as we pray for this Easter Blitz over the next few weeks. Let's engage in this opportunity to be stretcher carriers. Let's carry lost and unchurched people to Jesus. We pray about the needy and the hurting people who are all around us. Can we be used by God to be stretcher carriers? Or do we want to be sermon critics? Let's pray. Daddy, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to join you, to be your ambassadors once we profess faith in you, to go and beg people to be reconciled to you. 
God, would you use us? Would you use this local church? It's your church. God, so that perhaps on Easter Sunday, but I would pray every time we come together that as we leave, we would be in awe of you. As we leave, we'd be able to see remarkable things that you've done. God, thank you for the bread and the cup, the opportunity to remember you. Thank you for this church that has been so impactful in my life. God, thank you for your son. We love you and we praise you. And we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.